Winning doesn't mean anything unless someone else loses. Which means you're here to be the loser. Fiction is one of the few experiences where loneliness can be both confronted and relieved. Drugs, movies where stuff blows up, loud parties. All these chase away a loneliness by making me forget my name is Staff Only and I live in a one by one box of bone no other party can penetrate or know. Fiction, poetry, music, really deep serious sex, and, in various ways, religion. These are the places, for me, where loneliness is countenanced, stared down, transfigured, treated. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you Iowa Writers Workshop Dropout Screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. Raise your hand if you're feeling experimental this week. I said, raise your hand if you're feeling experimental this week. Recovering from that nasty gathering for Thanksgiving with your family, I am sure that you are in need of something to soothe your soul. And there are few things more able to do that soothing than a bit of immersive, thought-provoking fiction. What exactly does that mean? Well, I suppose we should find out together. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 91 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. On this week's episode, we're going to be making a little bit of a departure from our usual format, Screedlers. For some time now, I've been wanting to do occasional episodes where I invite my writer friends on to read their work, making those readings a central aspect of the episode instead of having them read small excerpts here and there over the course of an interview, say. Uh, Ideally, these would be people that have already appeared for a standard interview, so you'd have already heard them talk about their life and their work in general. Think of it as a nod to books on tape, but exclusively read by the authors themselves. Unless, of course, Matthew McConaughey is listening and wants to read them in character as Russ Cole from True Detective, in which case, Matthew, email me at sean at humorandtheabject.com. In proposing this as a format, I thought it would only be fair if I bit the bullet and put myself out there in the first iteration. So on this week's episode, I'll be reading for you two pieces of fiction that I've read live at kind of intimate events, but never really shared outside of those, say for uh, older subscribers-only text posts in the past. The first I read at the release of poet Peter B.D.'s Milk and Henny in Brooklyn, New York last spring. It's a fictional glossy magazine profile piece on a young it boy New York artist named Jalapaz Kirkham. The second, and I'd like to ask for your forgiveness before you listen to it, is far stupider. And I wrote it for a comedy night called Into the Woods, organized by Ari Richter at a gallery space in Brooklyn over the summer. It's a bit of, quote, erotic fiction, uh, erotic in quotes quite liberally, titled Have We Met Before?, about the HBO series Westworld. In the middle of reading it live, friend of the pod, comedian Lorelai Ramirez, who was also performing that night, asked me out loud what the fuck I thought I was doing. Uh, Next week, we'll be back 
to our regular interview format, but I hope that this little change of pace isn't too ridiculous for all of you. There are a lot of great writers with whom I've spoken thus far in the podcast, and I hope that by offering myself up for sacrifice first, they'll be willing to do readings of their own work in the near future. Thanks as always for listening, and consider subscribing to Humor in the Abject on Patreon for just $3 a month to show your support if you haven't done so yet. Let's get to it. Here is the first piece, Jalapaz Kirkham in Profile. Sitting at a small corner table at Nark Bar, the hotel cocktail lounge located inside of the standard East Village that I assume gets its name from an attempt at ironic humor, I look at my phone for perhaps the tenth time. I've been waiting over an hour for Jalapaz Kirkham, the downtown wunderkind whose recent solo exhibition at Gallery Matriarch in the Lower East Side sold out entirely well before it even opened. Despite an unexpectedly derisive New York Times profile that dropped just days before the show, Kirkham is enjoying a true moment. Collectors have been lining up in a purchasing queue without ever having seen his work in person. Cameron Sullivan, co-founder and director of Gallery Matriarch, told me over drinks last week that Kirkham's work alone has skyrocketed the gallery from a scrappy, artist-run alternative space to a veritable 21st century Deitch projects in only a year's time. Kirkham's output is popular with a who's who list of New York collectors, likely the result of their millennial children, known in museum development departments across the city as young collectors, having encountered him at any number of parties that he frequents multiple nights per week. No doubt one of those parties is at least partially responsible for his tardiness today. He'd asked me late last night, actually this morning, over Twitter DM to meet him at 11am. Having spent time with him several times over the past six months while on assignment for this profile, one that the magazine is now hoping paints him in a more sympathetic light than the Times one did, I suggested something closer to happy hour. I'd never actually seen him day walking, but he was enthusiastic and persistent, two consistent side effects I've noticed in those who frequently use cocaine. Reluctantly, I agreed, even showing up a very liberal 30 minutes late myself. Now nearing 1pm, I'm asking the server if I can just pay for my coffee and pastry when Kirkham comes stumbling through the door. He looks like absolute hell and has affected what I can only call a very Austin vibe. In a black Stetson Presidente model fur hat, a vintage Pendleton flannel, and Nile crocodile stallion boots, he saunters through the chic bar, belligerently somehow bumping into practically every table between mine and the door. But make no mistake, Kirkham is not a slouch. He's conventionally handsome, with thick blonde hair and the coveted, lean-but-toned body type best described as Brad Pitt in Fight Club. His black jeans, I noticed, are anomalous in relationship to the rest of his new look. They have a dropped crotch and straps hanging from them in seemingly random places. I decide that what he's aiming for is less Austin alt-country musician and more Albuquerque goth, if that makes sense. The server rushes over and delivers a Pim's cup before he's even seated himself, and Kirkham tips his hat like someone who has heard of, but never actually seen an episode of Deadwood. 
Foregoing an apology for his lateness, we've been here before, he proceeds to entertain me with anecdotes from last night's Bacchanal. Who was at whose loft party? Which of his pieces were on display that he covertly vandalized? How many rich girls he's ghosted in recent months who giddily tried to take him home as if nothing at all had happened prior? Which rich boys gifted him with copious amounts of drugs, not realizing how many times over he's made a cuckold of them? With a penchant for poetic storytelling and a nasty cocaine habit, he's both alluring and repulsive. If those loft apartments on Orchard or Spring Street are private schoolyard playgrounds for the generationally wealthy, then Kirkham is that rare poor kid on a merit-based scholarship sharp enough to have quickly figured out how to make poverty look sexy. He was born in 1989 in a white trash non-town outside of Indianapolis. His father was a night janitor at his junior high, and his mother was, or maybe wasn't, a stay-at-home drunk. He's got several siblings, but the number of brothers and sisters in his family changes depending on what state of inebriation he's in when you're speaking with him. In fact, while spending some time with him this past summer at an off-season event at Paramount Ranch outside Los Angeles, he regaled me one afternoon with stories of how his mother was driven to drink by having given birth exclusively to unruly boys, only to, later that evening, at an experimental music performance at Night Gallery in Los Angeles proper, skittishly explained to me that he felt a natural connection to working with Gallery Matriarch, because his father was frequently absent and he was raised in a feminist environment by a strong-willed mother and an influential crop of radical, queer older sisters. I once asked Kirkham if he was fond of Bob Dylan, and he asked me if that was a professional boxer. After draining his fourth or fifth Pimm's Cup, I've lost count at this point, he orders an Uber and we head downtown to his solo exhibition which is audaciously titled Ecstasy, The Jungle Book, or How I Learned to Queer Hell and Eat Beelzebub's Millennial Ass. En route, he loudly offers me cocaine, which I politely decline, while making awkward eye contact with our concerned driver. Kirkham seems unfazed, virtually shameless, and pours out several helpings onto the fat of his hand, between his thumb and index finger, snorting them up with discomforting aplomb. I've intentionally not paid a visit to his show yet, as I've spent plenty of time looking at his work over the last half a year. I already know what he does intimately, and I'm not fond of gallery opening events or press previews. Upon our arrival at Gallery Matriarch, Cameron Sullivan greets us at the curb and the two exchange kisses across both cheeks, which seems odd to me as Kirkham is from the Midwest and I'm almost positive that Sullivan grew up in Denver. She ushers us into the gallery space and I'm slightly taken aback. Kirkham has become art world famous for what he's coined Jedi Maids, assemblage sculptures of Star Wars memorabilia that reek of kitschy nostalgia. Since first encountering them, I've felt that they traffic in a kind of cultural opportunism. Kirkham admits that he was not a Star Wars fan growing up, let alone a nerd. While categorically poor, he was still relatively popular in high school, a varsity soccer player who smoked the correct amount of weed and downloaded obscure but respectable music from LimeWire. With the ascension of nerd culture through Silicon Valley's speculative employment valuation, I suspect that he presciently avoided making macho sculpture and instead incorporated materials that would eventually prove irresistible to a blossoming generation of wealthy art patrons soaked in startup capital. The upper-crust, culturally elite young New Yorkers who obsess over him likely, too, had no relationship to Star Wars, but much like their desire to live below 14th Street, 
They adore getting their hands metaphorically dirty. During Art Basel Miami this past winter, while I was on assignment to cover the increasing number of satellite art fairs with my focus to be the economic precarity of seeking artistic exposure by proxy, I was invited to a tongue-in-cheek overnight screening of the original Star Wars trilogy in Kirkham's room at the W Hotel on South Beach. Against my better judgment, I dropped by for a spell, leaving relatively quickly after a stormtrooper helmet filled with designer cocaine was knocked off of a nightstand, causing a fistfight between two young women I'd only seen previously in Instagram photos watermarked with the emblem of guest of a guest. The next morning, or afternoon actually, I got a text message from Kirkham that included a blurry, zoomed-in photo he'd taken of me from across the hotel room at some point. He used the markup editing tool on his iPhone to draw an enormous green dick ejaculating all over my face. The text message itself read, You like what you see? After I replied, How do you mean? He quickly responded, I mean the dick. Kirkham naturally had a solo booth at Art Basel itself, with Gibraltar Gallery, though, of Chelsea fame. When I ran into Sullivan during an after-party event for one of the satellite fairs at Max's Club Deuce, I asked her, since she officially represents Kirkham, if his work being featured by Gibraltar felt like a slight against her own program. Jalapaz and I discussed this at length, she told me, and we both agreed that it made more sense for him to pursue this opportunity and that it would ultimately have a positive trickle-down effect on both the gallery and the other artists that we represent. When I asked if there was any type of contractual requirement issued to her from Gibraltar that she also not show Kirkham at her booth in the less revered Liquid Art Fair on mainland Miami, she suddenly received an emergency phone call and stepped outside of the bar. I did not see her again that week. At Gallery Matriarch today, she's beaming with pride. I'm looking around the room, perplexed. Nothing here has anything to do with Star Wars, and I keep eyeing Kirkham to see if he's eyeing me to see how I'm reacting. Sullivan steps between us and whisks me off on an intimate tour of her space, one with more breathing room than those of many of her gallerist peers. Sullivan and her collaborators secured a 10-year lease on the space in early 2012, just mere moments before the Lower East Side was slated to be the next big thing. Adorning the walls are several crude, unframed charcoal drawings on newsprint that resemble a child's attempt at illustrating complicated flowcharts. Each is a sort of amateur hierarchy of evil. In one, a list of famous demons like Baal, Smog, and Scarmiglione is scrawled atop a juvenile aerial map rendering of the Berkeley Pit, the former copper mine in Butte, Montana that's since become a toxic Superfund site. There's a circular Pacific Sunwear sticker on it as well, where I guess a compass should be, instead of the NSEW initials for the four cardinal directions, it says F-U-X-X-X. He's invented a fifth cardinal direction. No context is given for the demonic names or where they're placed, and when I ask Kirkham if the reference to smog is meant to draw a parallel, between capitalist hoarding of ore resources upon the backs of working-class labor and the thievery and hoarding by Smog the Dragon of the Dwarf Kingdom's resources within the canon of Tolkien's Middle-earth, he replies, As an artist, it's my job to pose questions. Were I a visiting critic at an MFA program, this response from a graduate student in a critique would frustrate me. But I've come to expect such opacity from Kirkham. 
Last spring, I was invited to give a talk on art criticism in the digital age at the prestigious Headland Center for the Arts, located just north of San Francisco, where Kirkham was inexplicably participating in an artist-in-residence program. Surely there were plenty of other people for whom this would have better presented a significant professional and practical opportunity. Part of my gig was doing studio visits, and even though we'd already corresponded and met in person on numerous occasions previously in the interest of this profile, he managed to edge out another resident in the limited schedule of studio visits I was able to do. When I reported to his studio at the appointed time, he was nowhere to be found, and the space was absent of any physical artwork. Stapled to the wall was a map of the Headlands campus on 8.5 by 11 paper. On it, in Sharpie, he'd written... Does this feel like digital criticism in the 21st century, my good bitch? The other infographic-like works in the show are similar in aesthetic content and execution. Sullivan gushes to me about each, offering impossibly dense reads of the larger socio-cultural context for each piece without ever actually addressing any of the words, symbols, or compositions contained therein. For almost the entire time, Kirkham sits near the back office on a nondescript stool, taking nips of a flask he produces from his Pendleton and pulling regular drags from a jewel e-cigarette. He quietly retires to the bathroom multiple times, perhaps opting for a more covert consumption of cocaine than he'd undertaken in the Uber ride over. It makes me think that, possibly in spite of his enfant terrible behavior in general, there might be a modicum of truth in his statement to me at Paramount Ranch about working with Sullivan and Gallery Matriarch. While I'd hesitate to describe him as respectful of Sullivan as a professional acquaintance, he does seem to exhibit an uncharacteristic deference to her presence when it comes to nose gesso. Sullivan intuits that I'm dispassionate about the works at hand and cuts the tour of the drawing short, leading me to the center of the space. There on the floor is a single clementine orange with a Bic ballpoint pen stabbed into it at a 45 degree angle. It's sitting on top of a bumper sticker affixed to the gallery's floor that boasts the cringeworthy slogan, No Fat Chicks. I stare at it for a minute, clearly trying to reconcile what on earth it could possibly be proposing in terms of critical inquiry to its audience. Able to arrive at no conclusion whatsoever, I say to her, this doesn't make sense. Kirkham appears between us out of nowhere and counters, should it? I take a moment to collect myself, thanks Sullivan and Kirkham for the private tour, and exit the gallery into the bright sunlight of Suffolk Street. Walking dumbly to the Essex-Delancey station, I think about how long it will be before Kirkham callously fucks Sullivan over when a representation offer inevitably comes his way from Gibraltar or some other similarly-sized gallery. I think about how I sort of like how much Kirkham fucks with rich people and plays them for the cultural fools that they are, always have been and always will be. I think about how sad his peer group, people from similar backgrounds, will someday be soon when he ditches them to join the ranks of those tasteless rich ghouls. I think about how I'm smarter than Kirkham because I don't chase stupid, vapid signifiers of success by cosplaying generational wealth. I think about how I'm smarter than Sullivan, because I'd have seen straight through Kirkham's bullshit working-class Camart star facade from day one. As I stand on the inexplicably packed Jamsy platform to Brooklyn at 3pm on a Saturday, people cursing and sweating and tired and emotionally drained just trying to get home from whatever this day has dumped upon them, I hear a group of teens say that they've been waiting over a half an hour for a train. 
that the city's infrastructure is crumbling and that New York doesn't care about anybody making less than a quarter million dollars a year. My phone buzzes. I look down and there's a text. Jalapaz Kirkham. Thanks for coming through today. For real. Amped on this piece. Keep me posted and let's link on a drink soon. I think about the reasons that I am foolish enough to live in New York, taking on copious amounts of debt beyond my means. I think about how I think I'm smarter than everybody else and how I'm more principled than everybody else and how I'm one of the only people left in the art world doing something important here. I think about how Kirkham picked up the check at Narc Bar that included my coffees and pastry and how I still have $9 in cash on me. Enough to get a Tecate and a whiskey, plus a respectable tip without having to use my credit card at the bar near my house, if I can make it there within the hour. And then I think about how I hope, constantly, that one day I, too, will get an invitation to the rich kid's table. Alright, that got kind of real at the end, didn't it? Uh, Let's lighten things up a bit with our second and final piece. From the comedy night Into the Woods, organized by Ari Richter... Here's my incredibly sexy work, Have We Met Before? It was early evening in the dog days of a scorching summer, and the lazy sun was setting slowly over the sleepy town of Sweetwater. Hazy pink and orange rays filtered through the dusty windows of the Mariposa Saloon. Gathered around creaky wooden tables, dirty and burly cowboys played cards and sipped room-temperature whiskey that tasted like shit. But they didn't make a big deal about it, being cowboys and all. Their business was getting drunk, and business was, let's just say, not bad. A rickety but Baroque player piano in one corner of the room plunked out the notes to sail by AWOL Nation. At the landing, situated at the top of the stairs that were part of the room, suddenly two ravishing women in elaborate silk and lace dresses appeared out of nowhere. Clementine Pennyfeather, one of the proud working girls of the Mariposa, was definitely hot. But Maeve Millay, the Madame of the Mariposa, was even hotter. She ran the show like it was an ocean ship. She didn't exactly have time to be teaching people how to row with oars or find the North Star every ten minutes. Without warning, the saloon doors swung wide open with a clatter and a creak. Everybody looked at the saloon doors. The silhouette of a man appeared in them. Who was this man? They wondered both in their heads, and also a couple of them said it out loud. He strutted in, spurs jangling. His piercing eyes shot daggers through the room. He smelled of saddle oil, gunpowder, and history. He was devilishly handsome and looked exactly like Cyclops from the X-Men movies. The crowd of cowboys and employees of the Mariposa stared in awe as he maneuvered through the room like a jazz clarinet player, finding a pocket for a solo in the middle of a chaotic improvisational freakout by the rhythm section. Arriving at the bar, he locked eyes with the bartender. Whiskey, he said. This was Teddy Flood. Maeve and Clementine descended the staircase and then made a beeline for Teddy. He watched them approaching him like he was a hawk in a tree. 
Other people were also watching, and the room was thick with anticipation. You just knew something was about to go down. Not much of a rind on you, Clementine said coyly, twirling Teddy's raven mop of healthy hair. Then she winked. I'll give you a discount. A lesser man would have blushed, but Teddy was always on point and always ready to flirt. It was his calling card. Hello, stranger, Maeve said. Teddy looked Maeve up and down. She's really sexy, he thought to himself. Then Clementine let go of his hair and curtsied. Teddy winked at her. What's up, ladies? Teddy asked. He threw back his shot of whiskey and turned to the bartender. Say, you got any more of that whiskey back there? Fuck yeah, said the bartender, pouring him a full pint glass of the brown gold this time around. Maeve and Clementine started pawing at Teddy, and he liked it. He started to get a boner, and Maeve and Clementine noticed. Did you have to register that with the sheriff, like as a lethal weapon? Clementine asked, referring to his boner. It hasn't killed anybody. Yet, Teddy replied, appearing sexy, but secretly eyeing a man in the corner who was watching the whole exchange in a way that made Teddy suspicious. The man in the corner stood up really fast and tried to pull out his gun, but Teddy shot him and everybody in the bar went totally silent for a second. The player piano had finished its tune at that exact moment, which made the silence even more impactful. The man's blood and brains were all over the wall. The smell of his blood was very gross and flies were eating it. Riled up and even hornier now that he'd just blown a guy's head to bits, Teddy grabbed Maeve by putting his hands into her armpits and then he lifted her onto the bar so that she was sitting on it. He buried his face between her thighs and started to go to town. Maeve arched her back and started getting off. Clementine took a cue and got naked. Teddy started fingering her expertly without even looking. Now he was getting two women off at the same time. Teddy had entered beast mode. The cowboys all whipped out their dicks and started jerking off while they watched. This just made the whole thing even hotter. Within 10 seconds, cowboys started to bust their nuts because they could barely handle watching these three prime specimens basically fucking in front of them. One cowboy passed out from coming so hard. The bartender started pouring tons of shots and giving them out to try to slow down the rate at which cowboys were jizzing all over the place, but it was in vain. The jizz was flowing like the whiskey flowed in watering holes all over the territory. Teddy had started stroking his own dick with one hand. You would think that he would have used his dick to start fucking Maeve and Clementine, since they said his boner looked like a lethal weapon through his pants, but you'd be wrong. Teddy was a master of fingering and eating people out, but it turned out that this was because he'd had to learn alternative ways to please his lovers. The fact of the matter was, Teddy Flood had a chode. He'd actually put a cheesecloth sack filled with beef tallow into his pants that morning, so it looked like he was packing an impressive hog. That's what Clementine and Maeve had seen earlier. Anyways, at this point, Maeve and Clementine had both come like a hundred times and were begging Teddy to let them get near his dick. Nevertheless, he persisted in pleasing them in his own ways, keeping his chode to himself even as he pummeled it violently. He was almost there, the jizz in his balls creeping up his wide but short shaft, practically ready to erupt. Just as his jizz was about to be unleashed, the sound of a gunshot rang out in the Mariposa saloon. Teddy turned towards the door. Maeve and Clementine also looked at the door. Standing in it was a man wearing all black. 
He was older than Teddy, by maybe like 30 years, but Teddy couldn't help but think that he looked familiar. Had Teddy met this man when the man had been about Teddy's age? No way. How could that even be possible? The man in black sauntered into the bar, took one look around at everyone, and then whipped out the craziest dick that anybody had ever seen. It was bigger than a Mini Cooper, and packed more horsepower to boot. He started clenching his butthole muscles a bunch of times, which caused his dick to bounce up and down. The dick seemed like it was pointing at Teddy, threatening him at his throat, and then his kneecaps, and then his throat, and then his kneecaps because it was bouncing. Both Maeve and Clementine were staring at the dick, their jaws agape. Teddy felt emasculated. He quietly put his chode back into his pants. Any of you fine people know a woman by the name of Dolores? The man in black asked, using his butthole muscles to make his powerful boner bounce along syllabically to what he was saying. Oh, you mean me? said an unfamiliar voice, as a blonde woman in a blue dress appeared out from under the stairs. Dolores, Maeve exclaimed. How long have you been standing there? Long enough to see you come once or twice, Dolores said wryly. Nice, said Maeve. Have we met before? Teddy stammered to Dolores. We've all met before, Teddy, Dolores said, sounding nostalgic and horny. Teddy was puzzled. Enough, yelled the man in black. It was obvious that this whole meet-and-greet had partially softened his boner. It was still a huge-ass dick, veiny with a ton of girth, but it was only like half-hard at this point. He sat down on one of the chairs. Then he said, I came here to play the game. Dolores did a perfect cartwheel, undressing in the middle of it. She landed on his dick reverse cowgirl style, which in Sweetwater was just called reverse. You could tell that his dick had come back to life and Dolores grinded on him hard. You could tell that the man in black really loved getting his dick worked like this. His eyes looked like they were going to pop out of his head, while Dolores' pussy yanked at his part as if trying to start an outboard motor on a Boston whaler. The cowboys all caught a second wind and started to jack off again. It was obvious that this time they'd be able to hold off on coming a little longer since they'd all just come a few minutes ago. Fuck me, William. Fuck me like you did when you first visited the park with your brother-in-law, Logan, who died a few years later of a heroin overdose, Dolores screamed in ecstasy. The man in black obliged. They were fucking so hard that the chair that he was sitting on exploded, sending splinters of wood all over the bar. A bunch of the splinters stabbed the cowboys who were jerking off in the dicks, but they were all so horny that it didn't matter. They'd sooner use their own blood for lube than miss the chance to spank it to this primetime show. But then, everybody froze without warning and it took the man in black a second to notice because he was so into fucking Dolores. When he realized that everybody had stopped moving, he had his suspicions. What do you want, Ford? He asked out loud. Through the door of the Mariposa Saloon walked a British guy who looked like Picasso and an American guy who looked like a balding Basquiat. This was weird because the man in black looked an awful lot like Jackson Pollock. The man in black stood up, his boner harder than ever. He looked around the room and it was totally crazy. The jizz shooting out of the cowboy's dick had frozen in the air and he realized that Teddy had disappeared. Greetings, William, said the Picasso guy, whose real name was Dr. Ford. Like Maeve ran the saloon, Dr. Ford ran just about everything. The guy with him was named Bernard. They all knew each other, obviously. Hello, Dr. Ford. Hello, Bernard, said the man in black. Ford and Bernard stared at his dick. It showed no signs of calming down anytime soon. William, Bernard said, have you seen Teddy Flood around here at all? Yes, said the man in black. He was just here a little bit ago. 
but now he's gone. Fuck, said Bernard. Dr. Ford nodded. A wolf trotted through the bar, and Ford poured himself a tall whiskey with a milk back. Two guys showed up and walked into the Mariposa Saloon, both wearing white and red hazmat suits. It was Felix and Sylvester, two guys who worked for Dr. Ford. It turns out that the whole town of Sweetwater was just part of one big amusement park. Dr. Ford was like the wizard to the place's Oz. But the man in black already knew this. He'd been visiting for years, and it turned out that he owned part of the company. It looks like an orgy was happening in here, Felix said, smiling a bit. You're goddamn right, said the man in black. There was an orgy going on in here, until Dr. Ford and Bernard interrupted. Ford lifted his glass in a sardonic salute to the man in black. He could be a real scamp when he wanted to. Felix and Sylvester both noticed the man in black's boner. Sylvester complimented it. The man in black nodded in appreciation. The next thing that happened seemed like a dream, because nobody even said anything to make it start happening. But Dr. Ford and Bernard started having sex, and then Felix and Sylvester started having sex. Then all four of them were having sex together. It was insane. The man in black got even more turned on and was working his own dick like a plowman in the field. He was jacking off so fast that smoke was coming off of his dick. The smell from the smoke was so savory that the other four guys could barely stand it. Everybody jizzed at the same time in the musky bar room. Dr. Ford snapped his fingers and suddenly the Mariposa Saloon came back to life. Everybody who was frozen was actually a robot who was part of the park's entertainment, but they didn't miss a beat. The fucking recommenced and suddenly the windows were shattering because everybody was howling like coyotes from how hard the nuts they were busting were. Even the bartender was fucking at this point. The player piano thundered out a honky-tonk take on the I'm a Scatman song, and let's just say that the residents of Sweetwater took this as a cue that just about nothing was off-limits in this mind-expanding fuckfest. As the man in black deep-throated two of the cowboys' dusty old dicks, he spied Bernard out of the corner of his eye, getting tag-teamed by Clementine and the wolf, and all of his ears fucking in the park, the man in black had never, ever seen it go down as hot as this. But something was missing. Teddy. Ashamed of his chode, he'd ridden a horse out of town and into a desert meadow where he was firing his gun into the night sky, cursing God. Back in the town, the orgasms were getting more intense. The wind surrounding Teddy stank like sex. He fell to his knees, a broken man. In actuality, he was a broken robot, but he did not know this. So far, only Dolores knew that they were robots, which explains why she said earlier that they'd already met. Teddy made a humble campfire and unrolled his sleeping sack in the dirt. Even though he was sad, he let himself beat his chode off to the memory of the three-way that he'd had earlier. His jizz hit the dirt next to his makeshift bedding with a poof, and then he yawned. Teddy was very tuckered out. As he was dozing off, he heard something that jerked him fully awake. Almost like a snarl, but also kind of like a whooshing sound, like the air was being sliced off in the distance. As his eyes adjusted to the darkness, looming beyond the reach of the campfire's glow, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. There was a samurai riding a Bengal tiger. Both of them had scandalous, outrageous boners. The tiger was roaring and the samurai was whipping his sword around above his head. But what stunned Teddy most was that when the tiger stood up on its hind legs to release a guttural squelch from its gaping maw, it appeared to be circumcised. Teddy panicked and tried to roll up his bedding, but it was too late. They'd spotted him, and they were coming straight for him. To be continued. Oh.
Well, how about that? Did you get off? I know I did. Thanks for listening to this experimental episode of the Humor and the Abject podcast. From all of us here in the studio, we are so thrilled to have had you along for the journey. It means the world to us. Join us next week when we'll be back with our regular interview programming. Until then, we hope you've enjoyed some short-ass fiction. And then